Alright, how's it going? This is the Who's Your Mob podcast, and this one is a bit of a quick one. I was able to get a few minutes of Dr. Miffany Turpin's time. Turpin time? Haha. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, she was down here in Melbourne for a quick visit because she's based up there in Alice Springs and on Kadich country in the work that she does up there with the Kadich and the Aranda mob. And yeah, after 20 years of working up there with mobs and their language and trying to recirculate songs, it was a rare opportunity to sit down and have a talk about the song structures and the ways to go about revitalizing song and language. Also get a bit of an insight into what goes on up that way in regards to revitalizing song because there are some communities up there which mightn't have a stronger connection to their language and traditions as other parts so just like down here in the southeast they have to work hard as well so it's interesting understanding those practices and yeah hope you enjoy our little chat hope you might learn a couple of things a little bit about the traditional ways of song up in the central desert and Oh, something else I gotta say is that when I got there we just started talking and before I could set up microphones and such and I didn't want to lose any of the flow, I just hit record once the microphones were all attached to us. You're going to join in somewhat in the middle of a conversation and then you'll hear me ask, who's your mob? and then we're back into the podcast proper. I was going to chop it up and then put it somewhere later on, but no, that wasn't going to work. I was going to fool you. So just to let you in on that little secret, yeah, here she is, Dr. Miffany Turpin. It seems fundamental to song, Aboriginal song, music yeah. is primarily song. And to do that um, sort of in engaging in modern music that's uh, reflecting or building upon traditional practices, then there would seem to, it would seem to me that language is a really crucial part of this and mm. you know, getting an understanding of languages from whatever place, how those languages are structured, like what Nick was talking about last night and... Um, I know I know where I work and I noticed the same with the examples he put up the verb always goes at the end of the lines and mm. you know, these these are not these are simple things but it's very helpful to know yeah and uh, uh, not always but often they're in the first person and uh, that sort of elliptical or symbolism is uh, reminiscent of the sort of stuff I've worked on in Central Australia. We have something really concrete, but it points to many other things and different things to different people too. Mm. You know, like that a great example from Tamsin Donaldson with the bark hanging down. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. That, you know, these sorts of things. So it's not the same, but it's so reminiscent of the sorts of imagery that you find in Central Australian songs. Yeah. But then say if you have the same story and the same message of the land, how in Arundel country there aren't as many 
having Aranda as their first language, but then how possible is it to then have those songs and stories translated into English so they actually understand the meaning? I yeah. think what I've been surprised at um, with the work on you know, some groups is that while you can identify words qu quite easily in, in some contexts, you know, you can pinpoint all the words, it's getting that backstory that Nick talked about, you know, the broader meanings mm. and significances is, is very difficult and it's probably a combination of things. It's difficult because people aren't certain, but it's difficult also because it's very nature is that there can be many and so people are reluctant possibly to put one out knowing that there is a whole range of other possible backstories to it as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not sort of factual in that one meaning sense. So. Cool. Which is pretty interesting. Like that's a hard thing to write and create something where all the words, you know, we know what it is, but it has lots of possible meanings. Yeah. Yeah, I was finding it interesting how you, um, I guess the different levels of meaning depending on your level of initiation or status. Well, just experience. Mm. You know, if, if you happen to know all about witchetty grubs or versus someone that happens to know some people out, out west that do things this way and you bring that in understanding into the words in the song. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah. so I think because I've worked on quite a lot of languages in that region, you know, I can't help but bring these other meanings to it when I'm, say, if I'm looking at an Aranda song and I see words that are the same as this other language I work on, Kadich. I was thinking, oh, but that's that, you know, so I'd be bringing those meanings to it. And someone else might have the same thing but with another language and they're bringing different meanings and associations to it. I mm. think I think this thing probably always happened. Yep. Because yep. people were multilingual and everyone married different groups or went here or were good at something and had different areas of expertise. Mm. So, yeah, what I ask people is, who's your mob? <laughs> well, uh, mob's got a lot of meanings. I'm mm -hmm. not indigenous. And I think that I have a strong connection with people in Melbourne. It's where I'm from. I don't live here, but I've got family and friends here and people who I identify with. Yeah, so nationality and all that kind of biz? Um, my ancestors have, on my mum's side, have been here a really long time for the, from the Snowy Mountains. And my, fa on my father's side, he came out here with his parents from the UK in when he was seven, so um, he wasn't born here. Yep. And now you're living up in Alice Springs. Yeah. So you've been working up there for like 20 years? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how do you find the, as far as, you know, a connection to a place goes, uh, you know, Melbourne compared to up there? Yeah, different sorts of connections. And one of the interesting connections in the centre where I have, I think, is because I've worked on the Kadich language for a very long time and it was where I began in the mid-90s and I've since gone on to work with other people on their songs but I don't speak those languages. And uh, the feeling of going back to Kadich country with Kadich people, it's, it's like this, oh, I'm so at home. Yeah. <laughs> Compared to say if I'm working at Wave Hill or yeah. going out to 
uh, out west. Yeah, where is Kadish country? It's 300 kilometres north of Alice Springs. Okay. And yeah, what took you out there? I was doing some work for the Institute of Aboriginal Development as a summer student. Went up there over summer when I was doing my after my fourth year undergrad and loved the place and when I heard that there was a job coming up to uh, be part of a Cadish Dictionary project I thought that's for me. Yeah sweet. So do you have a background in music more than uh, linguistics or? I did a combined music linguistics undergrad so it was mm -hmm. a five-year undergrad course at Melbourne and um, have mostly worked in linguistic departments but um, I started off as a musician, you know, went through the Conservatory of Music as a, as a performance person, but became very interested in other sorts of musics very quickly. So what do you play? Uh, piano, piano accordion. Okay. It's not my day job, so I'm pretty rusty. But yeah. I still join up with the odd klezmer gig. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I guess classically trained. Mm. Yeah. yeah. All right. And but had a band in my university days. We used to tour a lot. Yeah. Did you have an interest in Aboriginal culture before going up there for the... Program? I think I must have always. I sort of wasn't really aware of it. But I think I always was. And I remember stories that my parents told me that had an impact on me. And uh, I think they would have... I remember all the... the um, books like The Giant Devil Dingo um, and when I was very young we lived in Mount Isa and I remember my mum saying that everyone was excited because they were going to the Slim Dusty concert or the Blackfellas you know, oh yeah. and then the police came and put them in the van and they said no you can't put us in the van because we've got tickets for Slim Dusty and I remember hearing stories like this as a little kid and finding these very upsetting. Wow. So maybe somewhere deep down I always had an urge to go and work in remote Aboriginal contexts, maybe. Yeah. And I guess going up into Aboriginal communities for the first time it would have been a bit of a culture shock. Well, I, I guess I don't really know too much about this particular community. Can you tell me a bit about it? Um, Alice Springs is very multicultural and I don't think I realised when I was going up there how multicultural it was. I, I must have always had a, I think as a, as a musician in the early 90s and we would do a lot of gigs and you know, Ruby Hunter and Archie Roach and people like that and Titus and you know, it was an era when there was a lot of awareness about Aboriginal, um, you know, for the first time maybe. Hmm. Perhaps this was just because I was in my early 20s. Um, indigenous cultures, so I saw, and a lot of those festivals, you know, had some uh, obs observation, really, not part of, but observing, oh, there's a whole lot of Aboriginal mob there, or, oh, you know. so it wasn't completely new to me, even though Alice Springs is obviously different. Maybe, maybe it was just that I expected it, or I can't remember, but uh, it just felt natural and good, and, you know, just what I wanted everyone on the street speaking languages I didn't know and you know clearly Aboriginal languages and yeah that was pretty exciting 
But I guess the Kadich mob, yeah, how strong is the connection with language there? Is it their first language or are they kind of like revitalising language at the moment? Yeah, it's changed a lot since, you know, in the 22 years I've been up there. The, it is the first language of some people. There's a lot of people it's not. Probably most Kadich people it's not their first language. Um, and the style of the language is, is changing quite rapidly with the influence of other, other English mainly languages. Uh, but certainly it's, it's still a first language of some people. Mm. And how many words would be in the dictionary at the moment? Uh, it's always... The short answer is 7,000. Yep. The more complicated answer is that some words are derived from other words. Okay. So, you know, what makes a word? So, you know, so there's, um, so there's that many entries in the dictionary, but there's sort of many more derived words. And, so, yeah. yeah. And Kadich, is it its own country or is it connected to... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's spoken around Barrow Creek. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Halfway between Tennant Creek and Alice Springs. Yep. I've got to ask what it is like being non-Indigenous, working in an, an Aboriginal community for Aboriginal people, which is quite close to their cultural, yeah, the, the heart of their culture, their language. It's an immense privilege and it's something I take very seriously and I want to do a good job. I, I want to be a good representative of linguists, musicologists, you know, researchers or, um, so, you know, that's guiding my sort of ethics and practice. It's, it's not just about, um, I want to do something that's useful and beneficial and, and at the same time doing something that fits in with cultural ways of being, which, you know, not being an insider, always learning and negotiating and, and getting assistance, really, on what those things are. Mm. And then going up there to work on the dictionary initially, how did it move into song? What do you say, like uh, recirculation? Yeah, Yeah, it's quite an interesting difference with language. There is a awareness of, we want to keep our language strong. You know, we're going to use these tools, we're going to make tools that promote the language, posters, books, learner's guides, flashcards, and that's widely understood. But how you relearn or maintain traditional ceremonial practices, traditional songs, is a lot more complicated. Hmm. So a lot of my work on songs has been documentation rather than working in with what will help these be maintained because I don't think it's clear and you know sort of haven't got instructions whereas you know in the schools it's quite clear you know well, we want this we want to do a theme on bush tucker and whereas I, I think for some people it's quite difficult to know how to keep these practices going because they're so personally they're owned by family groups or mm. sung in specific contexts with um, you know, a whole lot of 
political situations around you know, who can sing them, where they can sing them, uh, for what purposes that spoke just everyday speech doesn't have. Mm. Mm. And things have changed a lot, like certainly with the Aranda there's a real revival sense, which isn't really the case with the Kadich people. So okay. the Aranda people are very, very active in trying to maintain and reclaim things, yeah. songs. So, and um, you know, when I've worked with people out west or up at Kalkaringe, it's been it's been similar. I, perhaps it's because the Kadish people are really struggling just to hold on to their language. It's well, that's where we're focusing our energies. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and then, what's the importance of bringing back language? If it's kind of, um, yeah, it seems a lot harder work than if it would have been just a part of, you know, everyday culture. Mm. Yeah, it's really, for the cadence, you know, maintaining language, it's, it's, it's not a total uh, revitalisation, you know, from, from scratch. So this people still go out hunting and it's immediately clear where they're going to use these words for the food so it has a real application but when there isn't um, practices for singing these songs like if there aren't contexts it's not so clear mm. you know, how they're going to be if they've got a role I, I guess yeah. yeah I guess language is very much tied into song which is very much tied into knowledge and understanding of culture yeah, is there a way that important parts of culture can be passed down without the language? Or is there a way that um, realising how hard it is to learn a language, yeah, are people able to get some of these stories, say, in English? Yeah, and certainly people appreciate the importance of having something in both English and their language. So, you know, if I've been working on documenting cultural stories and recording this. People generally always want it in English as well because there are so many people that don't speak the language or you know, they're trying to communicate to a non-Indigenous audience and um, yeah, English is really the, the broader language so if you want to communicate I think people um, are aware of that. There's also uh, when you asked the question about um, important aspects of culture being passed on through English, I mean, I'm sure that's the case. Uh, you know, it's it's not that there's things you can't do in another language. You can sort of do anything in another language, really. It just might take more words or, or you have to find different ways of expressing things. But language in itself is something that people are proud of. Mm, mm. You know? So there's that medium of transmission and you know you could do it in Arabic probably or um, but there's this unique thing language and I think there's a lot of people that just want it for that reason too yeah because really I mean you're going to communicate you're going to learn detailed cultural things probably best in your first language whatever that that is yeah yeah so it's that difference between like the communicative function and that identity yeah yeah right yeah and why is it that the Kadish uh, don't have as strong a connection to their language as other tribes in the Central Desert? Well, so it's all, all relative, 
Walpuri is the neighbouring language, it's got a lot of speakers. Um, Anmachado is the neighbouring, it's got a lot of speakers. Wairamulu to the north is similarly, has a similar number of speakers than, as Kavich. Okay. So maybe they were always small groups, maybe, who knows what happened historically, you know, prior to 200 years ago or whatever. Mm. Don't really know. But there are other languages in the region that, in the broader region that are no longer spoken or that have just a handful of speakers too. Yeah. And then how close is the Kadich language to neighbouring, you know, like Walpuri and other mobs? It's closely related to Alyauda, the eastern neighbour. Possibly, you know, it's, it's, I'd say it was mutually intelligible on that area. But once you get further afield, say to Arunda, which is a few languages away, mm. it's, you know, there would be Arunda people that couldn't understand Kadich. Yeah, right. And so how different is that, say, if you compare English with other Latin languages and dialects? Mm, I'd say, and I guess the difference between, say, Arunda and Kadich would be like Spanish and Italian. Yeah, right. And uh, what's, what's the kind of distance we're talking about? How many kilometres between each? Uh, about 300 kilometres. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe a bit closer than that, you know, maybe it's something more akin to Danish and Swedish. Maybe not that close, but, you know, they're clearly related, but you, you have to um, have had a lot of experience with both languages to really understand. Yeah, right. Up there, I'm just noticing with the Aranda language, I'm not sure how far that extends into other parts of the central desert, but the spelling of <laughs> yeah. uh, other words. So, so. Um, oh yes, the inevitable question of spelling. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, to look at you know like how you know Arana is spelled, like it's like A double R E R N T E. So I, I look at that and then I see Arenti. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, why isn't it just spelled like? Yeah, A R A N D A. Okay. Let's take one point at a time. Yep. It's spelled with a T, and you said why not a D? Yep. It comes after an N. Yep. And there's a sound, this T D thing, that yep. changes when it comes after an N, but it's the same sound in that it doesn't create a different meaning unlike bat and pat see b and p are two different sounds but if i say pat and pat i'm gonna go yeah that's the same letter repeat but mm. i just said it two different ways and you couldn't hear it so for an under person to make the distinction between a t and a d mm. is like you trying to distinguish between a pat and pat the first one was aspirated you know, mm. and the second one was not. And these are two different sounds in English, but we don't create meaningful differences between pat and the P in spat. Like they're actually two different P sounds, but we don't think they're two different meanings because we have one, what we okay. call phoneme in linguistics. Yeah. So that D and T is one phoneme. And, and it's like if you've worked with Aboriginal people who speak English as a second language, you know, they might, you might say, um, Bumper or pumper, and they'll look at you like you're mad because they can't hear a difference. Mm. So the idea with the spelling was to say, let's not confuse people. 
mm-hmm. that speak the language, let's have the same letter for that same meaningful sound and not try to make them differentiate between a sound that they un- you know, hear as one. Mm. Is it just for that particular area or like how far does that... Oh, that particular rule is stretch. all over Australia. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was just because you picked up the DT thing, so I thought I'll talk about that. And similarly with the double R, double R and one R. Yeah. Conversely, they are two distinct sounds in Aboriginal languages. Mm. Yeah, so, I, I can rat see. Rat rat. Sorry? Yeah, rat yeah. and rat would have two very different meanings. Yeah, but I guess that would be similar in Spanish, yeah? Or in, or in some European yeah. language, they've got the yeah. rolled, rolled R's. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if they have that distinction between the two R's, but most Aboriginal languages would have a distinction between those two R's, so, you know, you need to spell them differently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what makes it hard for the spelling of Arandic languages is the sounds in these languages, Kadich, Adundara, Yaura, and much of this group of languages spoken broader Alder Springs region, is that they have sounds that are not common in other Australian Aboriginal languages. Mm. That's not that common. So we have to find new ways to represent these sounds. So the sound is represented K-N-G. And that mm. is not common. People aren't used to seeing that, but they're not used to hearing that sound either. So. Yeah, yeah. So with your process, trying to work to reclaim and revitalise songs and that, what have you learned along the way in regards to you know, what is an effective way to bring back songs and what doesn't quite work? What have you tried? Hmm... I think it's very hard to have blanket pictures because every situation's different. Uh, I think opportunities to perform is really important Mm -hmm. and opportunities for intergenerational learning is really important. I wonder about that. I see most of the time people down in the southeast when they are performing when they're doing you know traditional dance and ceremony it seems to be you know very much for an audience whether it's you know focused on everyone's doing that dance uh, and that's part of the evening or the you know day's performance or it's part of an opening ceremony to, to something and i'm not sure as to how often mobs still go out and and practice ceremony without an audience where everyone's participating yeah interested in why that or or how that might affect the purpose and the yeah the traditional connections to these songs yeah you can see this this distinction between performing for a non-indigenous you know audience or you know going going away to some festival or event versus learning in your intergenerational in communities. So is this sort of what you're getting at, these differences? Mm, yeah. 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 And there's not um, as much support for... Um, there's sort of not the infrastructure, really, I guess, for intergenerational learning in, in the home communities, you know, the local hall on the 
Friday night is when this group gets in to do their thing. You know, it's a very different um, culture in remote community. Hmm. Can you speak on how these songs might have been transmitted traditionally? Yeah, well, traditionally people wouldn't have had TVs and um, cell phones and everything to distract them. So what you did was what everyone did. We were all in it together. So in the evenings, people would sing and dance. And that's just what you did because yeah, right. you know, it was a social activity every night. Every night, wow. Whatever, you know. Yeah. Frequently. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so there wasn't a matter of question or choice or, oh, no, I'm just going to go out and see a movie or going to go out and pish, put, pick bush tucker in the middle of the night. You know, this is just what happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, even not long ago, it, it really wasn't that long ago where there wasn't um, forms of media. So, you know, I'm not talking about hundreds of years ago. It's, it's really 50 years ago or something when that's what people did in the evenings. You know, there wasn't TVs or yeah, yeah. remote settings anyway. Yep. So there's songs that have been reclaimed through recordings, I imagine, yeah? Are there also new songs being written in regards to being able to represent new cultural situations and such? Or is it all trying to bring back old stories and old uh, language and traditions? I think two things. One is the traditional songs that are still being used and people still want these traditional practices to continue like um, during initiation. You know, these are not new songs, these are songs that have been around for a while and people want them to continue and you know, as far as I know no one's suggesting innovations of, of new songs. So there's that stuff that people are just trying to keep it going because it's got currency, it's, it's, it's valuable. And I think there are also other people that want to create songs for new contexts. So um, for that book that I edited with, with Jim, Jim Wafer, I asked M.K. Turner, I said, would you write a song poem we could put on the cover? And she said, oh, yeah. And, and, you know, she wrote one that's on the cover for that. So I think there's an openness. And, you know, this has happened in other contexts that I've heard of as well. People are um, open and willing. I mean, it's probably a bit of a new thing to sort of consciously come up with something but they build this is building on patterns that it's a it's a genre or tradition it's in the style of traditional songs mm. you know maybe i think there'll probably be more of that I, I i think just wanting to understand a little bit more about the technical musicality of traditional songs from the small amount that i've heard seems to be well at least across the uh, central desert you know quite familiar sounding to each other, my palette for traditional music. What are some of the consistent features that you've found which is unique to traditional Aboriginal music? Mm. They're um, the texts, so the words are really important and it's the words that drive the rhythm. So if there's 12 syllables, it'll, it'll have a certain, um, you know, there'll be 12 notes rhythmic notes, not pitches, but 12 
note attacks. Hmm. So there's a strong relationship between rhythm and language. Yeah. And that's pretty widespread in the centre. There's not as much... Um, not like we heard last night in the top end where we have that lovely melismatic... You know, there's, there's less of that and it's quite rhythmic. But the melodies, I mean, they might sound similar to someone who doesn't know the songs. And um, sometimes you get the same rhythmic text, but different melodies to it, because it's a different group, so they have their own melody. Yeah. Stamp, melodic stamp. Yeah, right, okay. And some of these rhythmic texts that are widespread have a different melodic stamp. I was playing one to a pigeon judder lady who, who sings it too, and she was listening to the way people at, at Wave Hill sang it, and she said, oh, yeah, see, they go like this, and she's using her hands to show the melodic up and down. But yep. when we do it, we do it like this, and, you know, she does a different hand shape. It reminded me of, you know, solfege or something at school. The teachers would go like this, so she was doing something similar. And, you know, one perspective it's the same song and she was recognizing that but it was very different melodically and that was the stamp of different ident different groups yeah yeah so I think there must have been a lot of sharing of these poetic texts or rhythmic texts and uh, people put their own melodic stamp on it all right so then like a certain melody like would be owned by a family or, or a tribe mm. that would be very specific to them yeah will be associated with a particular ancestral being. Yeah. Okay, like, yeah, melody The water stuff. tune. The, oh, the, oh, the right, desert okay. rat tune, you know, this, this sort of thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And Kath Ellis has written a lot about this yeah. in the Western Desert region where she worked. Yeah. So you could just hear the melody. You wouldn't know what song it is, but you could might think, ah, oh, yeah, fire dreaming. Or yeah. Just by knowing that melodic shape. Mm. And I'm trying to understand... I can hear some scales going on, but it's not as if they would have had harmonic instruments to be able to know Abs what a, that's right. you know, mm. a minor third was mm. and, and such. Mm. Um, and then I'm also wondering how much of maybe the influence of listening to Western music might have had uh, an influence on you know, their uh, understanding of, of scales and, and shapes of melodies. So It appears not to have in the centre. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, if you listen to earliest recordings, there just doesn't seem to be a lot of change in the melodic scale or pitch structure. Yeah. You can be a good country western singer and then sing traditional songs. So, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting, this lack of influence from these two quite different traditions. Yeah, but then how close is it to, say, you know, like the western 12-tone? Yeah, it's pretty different. Okay. And I think that is like you say, it's a result of this not being tuned instruments and hmm. the voice is, is primary. Yeah. Why do you even need discrete? I mean, you can see how having discrete pitch, a scale, hmm. is, is going to be, um, it's not sort of, I don't think it's the way to approach it because, you know, it, I mean, in, in the voice, singing, you often drop a pitch and you, you know, by the time you've started a song to when you've ended it, you might have slept a, a tone or, or more, and you know it's quite hard to nail the concept of a scale when you're 
have got um, differences in your start and finish pitch. Yeah. Still, I guess listening to you know some melodies, you get the sense of you know that tonic note that oh, they yeah. that, yeah, that yeah. they're going to mm. be mm. ending up on. Mm. And I had a go at playing a bit of guitar along with some mm. of these songs that you know they kind of take their shape through the fourth and the fifth and the mm. yeah. uh, minor fall and the major lift. No, nah, yeah. anyway. Um, and yeah, and it. Um, yeah, of course, it's not as strict as, say, a singer singing along with a harmonic instrument, but with some, you know, definitely more than others, that there is a bit more of an attachment. It's not, you know, it's going to sound diatonic as opposed to 12-tone music or microtonal music. Mm. Yeah, I also wonder the relationships that intervals will have with each other, say, you know, the fourth and the fifth and just the way that sound waves interact mm. with each other as to how how universal that might be or if if you get the feeling that that is not paid attention to i think it's the shape that's important with yeah. melody i mean you could sort of have it up down stay on this and then go down but you know you could have started it here and your up could have been really big you know it's the shape there's some uh, similarity of shape mm. which is important not the relative movements yeah yeah, yeah. okay um, and of course there's a lot in vocal style that you know I haven't explored but it'd be great if someone a vocalist you know, could yeah. have a look at this I think there's a lot in how people um, use air you know how they project it going from um, you know, diaphragm to throat to the mouth as a shape. There's things that are quite unique or different to in traditional singing to, say, country and western singing. Mm. Yeah, I do know. It's like, well, I guess them starting you know higher in the register, it's you know starts out quite loud, and then by the end, it's it's almost like a, a mumble. Mm. Uh, is there any purpose to that, or are they just running out of breath, or? It's this. It's the preferred aesthetic, you know, yeah. for that um, traditional singing, that that sort of ceremonial singing. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Um, it almost seems like a uh, a manual fade out. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I hear some tunes that they seem quite ametric. And then others, you know, might be a, a stricter, you know, four four or six four. Is that related to particular styles, particular places? Uh, it, does it just, you know, accidentally come about that way because of you know those syllables just seem to fit into stricter bars? Yeah, I think there's a variety of reasons. One is the desire for contrast. So you you know, you have these metrical things and then you have one that's free or okay. a triple and then a duple. This contrast is is interesting and lively. But it also gets used to represent different estates or ancestral beings as, or particular themes as well, I think. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it can have a lot of different functions. Um, I mean the number of syllables sort of might be complex and might lend themselves better to a uh, a free a metric setting mm. as well. Yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, in a couple of instances I've thought, oh, that seems to correlate with these songs. You know, these ametrical ones, or ones of a particular moon ancestor. Or, but it's, you know, it's not always, it's not that straightforward. It's like that 100%, but yeah, I think yeah. there is certainly associations between different aspects of music and the uh, country or dreamings or families that they're associated with. Yeah. I suppose this is not too dissimilar from the motif in a lot of operas, you know, when you get um, a motif coming back that represents the... Wow, okay. Um, you know, the, yeah. the evil or, or the, some guy. Is it Carmen? I'm trying to think of one of these operas where you, there's this lower motif that represents some one of those male characters. Yeah. And then you've got the overall structure. It seems like there's this consistent feature of 30 seconds of a particular melody, yeah? Mm. How far does that kind of stretch either way? As far as like once you have like a certain phrase, is 30 seconds accurate? or do For a song, yeah. yeah, it's usually somewhere between 30 seconds and a minute. The, the single yeah. duration of singing, yeah, yeah. uninterrupted singing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then they'll repeat that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for an... Uh, Two or three times. So yeah. it's in Cadage, it's described as spreading out the verse. Okay. You don't just do it once, you, you've got to spread it out. So you'll do one 30-second singing and then you'll start in a different place, usually, of the verse and sp spread it out again. Yeah, wow. And then you use usually do it two or three times. If people are dancing, it might be ten times. Yeah. Because you've got to you know, get, let the dancers get to the place where they're supposed to get to or to complete the action. There yeah. you know, might be something representing like uh, a, a touching of the pole or, or handing over the pole. So if there's dancing, you'll spread out these verses for much longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that then fit in with, say, the song cycle? What is a song cycle? Mm. Yes, I don't know if this agreement over these terms, they're all used in different ways. Um, I don't use the term song cycle, um, but I know it's been used by other researchers. Um, uh, the songs that I've worked on, I've referred to them as song, song sets. Song sets, okay. Because the ordering isn't always fixed. Maybe some people use the word song cycle to refer to where you've got a fixed order of verses. Mm -hmm. Certainly in the, you know, in some are like that, I know, but I haven't worked on a lot of the, those. Where the order's more flexible and you can, you know, maybe go to this place and sing the song of this place. I mean, this is how people would talk about it, let's go there. Mm. I mean, they don't necessarily, they're not physically going there, but they mean sing the song from there and then they might go there. So there's some flexibility on, on the ordering. Yeah. So then you've got two or three or, or more repetitions of you know, that particular phrase. And then, yeah, I guess going to say different parts or different topics within the same you know, subject matter, within the same mm. uh, dreaming, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah, like how many, is it fair to say, verses will then fit into a song set? There could be lots. I think the most I've worked on in one song set was 74 verses. Wow. Um, there's some that are very similar, so whether it's just a variant or a different verse, it's, it's a mute point, but 
I'm just working on each new thing that I encounter. So if it's just slightly different, it's a new thing. So in that, um, yeah, in the Alyalda ones that I worked on, there was it's about 74 verses. Yeah. And do the singers have any trouble, like, yeah, just kind of going, yeah, oh, okay, well, what's, what's verse 72? That is so amazing. I mean, if I had to try and remember 74 verses, I'd, yeah, I'd be wanting a sheet. But no, people do it all orally. I've never encountered anyone who, who uses literacy as an aid. Yeah. It's, it's totally amazing. I think it's done through place. Yeah. By visualising the country. And if you talk to older women, they'll, they'll say, oh, young people don't know because they don't know their country. Yeah. You might think, what? Well, I think it's because it really is being used as a visual aid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how else could you remember such vast number of, of verses? You need some sort of aid and you know, they refer to country. So I, I think it would be, you know, visualising different places. Well, it sounds like the technique that you hear people using for memorising decks of cards and such. You know, they imagine themselves going through a particular... Okay. Place. So, yeah, yeah. yeah no, it yeah, seems to make a, a lot of sense. Not that mm. I've uh, tried to do that, but it seems like a, a definite technique used by, yeah, some of these like memory champions. So, mm. seventy-four verses of uh, of a song probably wouldn't be out of the question. Mm. Yeah, it's incredible the recall mm. that, that that those older people have. Yeah, I was curious as to then. Yeah, if that being a way of recalling songs and songs and stories and language, then what the pros and cons might be in regards to then learning songs from DVDs or from written. Yeah, these are different methods of learning with implications on memory. I mean, I I, I think I would struggle to. You know, I haven't grown up in a... I've, I'm used to literacy, so to train my mind to start remembering things through mnemonic aids like visualisations could be quite difficult. I haven't tried it. Maybe, maybe it would be... I could get there. But um, it's certainly the case that there are, these are, are different ways of learning and they probably do have an influence on the, you know, the mind and how the mind works. So... If people relied just on reading from a piece of paper, they're going to have a difficulty remembering songs without that piece of paper. Yeah. So you've you know, probably got to do both or you decide, I'm always going to have my bit of paper or... Yeah. You know. I think the best thing would be to use all sorts of aids. Right? I mean, the real aid of, of learning the verse is hearing it all the time and that doesn't happen in, in situ. So. There needs to be some aid there, but this idea of recall and being able to, you know, get them on the spot—that's like, you know, um, if you learn classical music, you know, you learn a piece much, very different when you've memorised it. Mm-hmm. You know, as a classical pianist, if I learnt something by memory, it was completely different to sight reading. To be able to play a piece of music without that sheet music there, yep. it's, it, you feel it differently in your fingers. So. Yeah, these are really interesting. Impl- the the differences in your body, you know, possibly from learning to know how to do something from just your own mind and body mm. to to reading, and 
Yeah, I mean, I think you do both, and certainly with classical music, you'd start by you know, reading and you would work very slowly to be able to do it without that sheet music. So maybe yeah. something similar there, you know, you could start off using a visual aid and then wean yourself off it. Yep. All right, so you've got a busy day ahead, so I'll let you go. But um, yeah, if people want to be able to read some of your work and learn more about what you're doing, where can they find uh, you? There was just one thing, actually, I did want to say, we haven't really talked about it, is the role of um, archival recordings. Okay. In you know, This is not literacy, this is just listening to old recordings. And um, how difficult uh, it is for people to access these recordings in remote communities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the impact, I mean, I've been quite very moved and shocked by the impact it has to bring a recording back from the 1960s, you know, to be able to find that in camera, bring it back to descendants of those people. It's, it surprised me by the currency and the interest and the emotional response people have to it. Mm. It is so deep that I, I feel very certain or if there was more of this happening, I mean, it's like people have just, they haven't chosen to abandon these traditions. Yeah. It's the accidental loss of them a lot of the time and by bringing these recordings back. I mean, I don't know if they're going to revive them, but the emotional response and the gatherings of people that have just been so moved by hearing these recordings. Mm. Uh, that was something I didn't expect. You know, maybe I thought... Yeah, yeah, that's cool, but you know we're into blues these days, or or you know we sing gospel now. Yeah, but it yeah. just none of that. People are just totally, you know, in my experience, fascinated and, and want access to this stuff, and are amazed that it exists. Yeah. Sometimes it's their their own fathers and grandfathers, and they had no idea that this stuff exists. Maybe it was just put down to the realm of lost history. And, yeah. yeah. And you can just uh, go to. I answer, so someone can just go and, and get <laughs> oh, the recordings and simple, bring it back. But yeah. yeah, if and and um, it's just makes me think that this sort of thing is something worth doing, and there is a lot more that could be done. I mean, there is a lot of material in in archives hmm. of recordings of Aboriginal songs that mean something to people that they've never heard.